Welcome to Big Data Small Talk, where we take the vast and complex world of data and break it down to bit-sized accessible conversations. Each episode is featured by leaders in the fields of data science, AI, or data engineering, as we explore the latest trends, challenges, and opportunities around data. Grab a cup of coffee and let's get started. Hello and welcome to everyone joining us today for another episode of Big Data Small Talk. Today's the 10th episode of our series and the topic could not be more important. Today we're talking about large language models or LLMs. And today they are everywhere. So the growth we're seeing today with the implementation of LLMs in day-to-day tasks of individuals, but also companies, is very outstanding. This is something that we have never seen before, and it's even being mentioned by the Google CEO Sundar Pichai, who said AI is one of the most important things humanity is working on, even more profound than electricity or fire. Which sounds like a wild statement, but when you look at the impact it's already having in the world, ChatGPT is the fastest growing consumer application in history and along with it have created new questions and new perspectives about the future of AI and going even deeper, the future of automation and intelligence. Now, as humanity, we're still trying to figure it out if we really want all this power locked in the hands of just a few individuals or companies or start building those large language models ourselves as open source code so anyone can access or just make sure that you won't be uploading sensitive data to someone else's database. Like we, we've seen it happen to, in the case of some companies. So, but of course, open source large language models also have their drawbacks. And these are all stuff we're going to discuss here today. And we have the most amazing guest speakers here today to, talk, to dive into this topic with us and makes us understand this a little bit better. And before jumping into the questions, let me introduce myself. I am Sabrina, Shikuro Developer Advocate and your usual host for Big Data Small Talk. And this space is brought to you by Shikuro. Shikuro works as the operational system for your data stack. It enables you to combine the best data tools and experiments within technologies without the burden of DevOps and simplifies data workflows. It basically guarantees compatibility across multiple data tools and streamlines the process of building and maintaining a reliable, high-performance, and cost-effective data stack. So you can learn more about us on Chikuta.io and, and dive deeper into what we do. And now I want to head over to our panel of speakers here today. And I'd like to, to thank you all for being here. And while we wait for Arima's, we can get started in diving deeper into the background of Abby and Christine. And I guess we can start with Abby. Now, Abby, I know that you're working closely with large language models and putting a lot of valuable stuff on your social media about it, participating in many discussions around it. And thank you so much for bringing this expertise here for us today. Could you tell us a bit more about yourself, your experience, and what you're working on right now? Sure. So I am currently a consultant and I'm working with ML companies. One of the companies that I'm working with is deploying large language models in production. We haven't. We are still in the explorative stage, which is doing cost evaluation and figuring out how to go about it. 
We do have a framework available. Other than that, I am also writing a research paper on the topic and potentially a book as well. So that's that's my background on my association with large language models. For ML itself, I've been in the field for about eight years. And I've been doing a lot of like conventional statistical machine learning, NLP, CV tasks, but I think the whole the whole wave of large language models have opened a huge future of questions that are almost new to a lot of us. And the biggest one comes around cost and how to be able to cover these models in production before we start deploying them. I love this. And definitely your expertise will be amazing for all of the topics that we're going to discuss here today. I'm super excited. And Christine, heading over to Christine, Thank you for being here. Christine is the co-founder and head of engineering at Chikuto and a person who I have the pleasure to work with and absorb a lot of knowledge from, especially around data and MLOps. And it is the brain behind making Chikuto the great data product, helping data teams take things to production faster. It's a pleasure to have you here today, Christine. And would you like to introduce yourself, your background, and your work at Chikuto? Sure. Thanks, Sabrina. That was such a nice, nice intro. <laughs> yeah, so I also have the pleasure of working with Sabrina at Chikuto. My background is in applied machine learning, and I've been working on large language models or rather NLP applications pretty much since I started working. This is pre, I guess, pre-BERT, back in the old like stats modeling days. I'm excited to chat about some of the cool things that we've seen amidst the LLM excitement in industry, how we're using it ourselves, and also, yeah, just get the perspective of others who've kind of seen these things go into production. I know, as Abby said, a lot of it is still a work in progress and sort of up for development, but that's kind of the beauty of it. Yeah, very excited to be here. Amazing. Okay, so let's jump into the questions. And to kick things off, I want to talk about the decision-making process when choosing between using a pre-built large language model, like OpenAI, ChatGPT, or GPT-4, to hosting and maintaining your own in-house model. Now, what are the main advantages and challenges of each one of these approaches right now? You can get started with this one, Christine. Go ahead. Uh, okay, sure. Yeah, so I mean... OpenAI's GPT model and anyone that is sort of hosted, like we obviously know the challenges with data. If you're very constricted, you can't have your data leave your own environment. And so this is not really an option, but there's a lot of great, it, I would say it's a great playground to get started. Certainly it understands a lot about like language and syntax and everything. So, I mean, even since the early days, we've seen a lot of posts around like, haha, and kind of making fun of how um, TPT can't do math and like logic and some things like that. But like, you can't lie, it's very good for something generic, like generating some emails or, you know, making some just like messages or marketing messages even. I wouldn't say it's, it, it takes some time to fine tune by almost uh, taking the previous output and then drill down to what you actually need. But just for a starter use case, like these are incredibly valuable, primarily like language based, I would say. It saved me a lot of time writing emails. I, I would say it's at least it's really useful for that when you're when you're doing your in-house model of course like you have the ability to keep things more private you have further control over sort of what what you're doing where your data is going and all of that like everything that's good about building stuff in-house right but then also all the challenges of having to build things like in-house like not only are we thinking about 
okay, like how do I stitch it together servers and have things like run together? Now it's a matter of like, do you even know what kinds of GPUs you're going to need? Especially if you're playing with a lot of different types of models, range, like huge parameter difference ranges. So you're going to have to work with different hardware. Like, can you even try things out on a local machine? It's got to be, you know, large. You're, you're trying to use a model that's large enough so that it has the capabilities of ChatGPT or or any of the newer models or, or, or even like storing the data that you're going to be using to fine tune and things like that. So again, it's like, it's really the, all the benefits of doing things in house where you have control, you can fine tune things to your liking, your data is going to be more protected and also all the, all the maintenance and expertise that you need to be able to maintain this kind of thing. Oh, that, that's a very nice perspective. And Abby, what's your take on this, this topic as well? So I think, I think some of the, one of the, this is one of the big questions, which is do we build it in house or do we go to a vendor And the common vendors right now are, Hugging Face, which is open source, or the closed vendors, which is basically more like OpenAI. I think the, the key challenges when I say, if you're looking at the external vendors are basically data ownership, control, model ownership, and inference economics. At least those are the four ones that I've been trying to wrap my head around. And for the right reasons, especially like if, if you're a company that has a lot of confidential information, how much data can you really share with a vendor? And again, then there are more. While there, these, again, would turn into advantages as well in, in terms of building your models in-house, which is you don't have to worry about data ownership. You own all of it. You don't have to worry about control. You don't have to worry about owning the models itself. You don't have to worry about how much would the inferencing cost because you can sort of estimate it if you're doing the inferencing in-house. But again, both of these things do open up some challenges. The first challenge would be around the prompt issues and fine tuning. And what I mean by that is, so working with OpenAI, anytime they are updating the models, the prompts that you have already said are open to changing. Same goes for fine tuning, which is you have to sort of keep updating your prompts as well as fine tune based on every single update. And I don't know, how many times it gets updated. So as of now, there's not a lot of information on, for example, is GPT 3.5 being constantly updated? Or how many times is the RLHF feedback going back in? So that's one question or one of the challenges. The second is, how do we do evaluation on, on these models? So while that's, again, an open question for both, as in whether you build your model in-house or whether you use the vendor-based model, how do, you, how do you come up with the right evaluation frameworks as an open question? OpenAI has created its own evals framework. But again, one of the big things is anytime you're exposing your data to OpenAI evals, you are exposing your data, which could be which could be private information as well. So you you do lose some of the data ownership and control in the process. The third is the question around annotations. How do you really annotate your data if you're using a vendor-based model? So again, these are these are challenges which are true for both 
to some extent, they are higher for a vendor-based model as compared to something which is built in-house. Another thing is more so around, can you, can you do domain-specific engineering on the models? And while you're able to build a model on, on your specific domain in-house, but the vendor-based models are a little bit more like a general domain models where they can do a lot of tasks, but their performance on a certain kind of question or certain kind of data might not be optimal. So that's one pro when you are hosting and maintaining your own large language model in-house. That makes sense. Yeah, I love this. And those are all great topics to keep in mind when actually evaluating, okay, should I use ChatGPT, GPT-4, who's my in-house model? I think most companies today are actually looking to, to host their in-house model and work with something that, that's not exactly connected to OpenAI or another company, right? So they can use their private data with it. And it is also fascinating to look back at how technology has evolved over time and large language models are definitely no different. So I was wondering if you guys could walk us through the journey of large language models, like starting from the early days, from hugging phase, and the research paper, attention is all you need, and today. So how this field has transformed and evolved since those early days. So I think I'll let Christine go in first on this one because she's been working on NLP forever. <laughs> I mean, thanks, Ari. Yeah, I remember there's a couple of primary differences and I would say it's because the momentum comes from different, I would say the momentum is built differently. So back in, I guess, back in stats modeling days, or actually way back when, when like word to vec was really like the most advanced, uh, and that's, this was a while ago, right? Like word to vec, it was like the most advanced up and coming uh, natural language or language processing to some degree. It wasn't generative, right? But I think during those days, it kind of like built, it, it built more slowly because first you have to understand um, like I would say there's a larger technical challenge to encounter trying to understand that now of course like word to vec these days it's like it's very obvious it's very or it's very like basic stuff now and, and same thing with like the LDAs and all those other stats models but I would say like fundamentally it was more rooted in stats and there's to some degree a barrier of entry same thing with like even when let's say BERT came out or all those other ones very quickly Hugging Face kind of came in to make it easy and accessible to everyone who knew how to code but but when it was first released, you almost have to like understand a lot of what's going on with the like with the architecture. Attention is all you need. Like you read the transformer paper, kind of try to figure out what's going on, and then start using it. And so very quickly, though, momentum kind of built, especially after well, yeah, Hugging Face entered the game. But I would say back in like back when there are these sort of technical challenges, a lot of things are built by let's say the community and kind of fed in to, to build the foundation of the space, right? So today we don't think about like, we don't think so much about, oh, okay, you can only have 128 tokens. So like if I wanted to get something from a larger like number of tokens, what am I going to do? Like a sliding window? Do we chunk it up and then, or like even a, yeah, do we chunk it up and then get some result and then amalgamate it or, or like get a mean or something like that? So I, I would say like a lot of these things are kind of built over the initial, I don't know if it's like we consider it the first or the second like rising of NLP when these large models first became 
available to people. So I would say like a lot of that work, the groundwork was laid out. Today, we don't think too much about like tokenization, like what's an UNC token? How do I like fine tune it on my own corpus? Or the, the, the process of fine tuning right now, but it's still heavily under development for the latest models. But like a lot of a lot of the initial, I would say, phase of things of people figuring out how to do the stuff, reading the code, trying to build their own APIs around it definitely shaped what it is right now. And now these days, the I would say the momentum is around well, the momentum is around that for usage, which is really cool to see because in, in a way, like you don't really you don't need to completely understand what's going on behind the scenes to 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 be able to use and to be able to think up new applications. And of course, like those things are still important, right? There's a, there's still a field of research and there's people actively going back to look at weights and and uh, model explain explainability and all these things. And of course, like fine tuning and and making sure that think proper things are censored and like non toxic. And things like that these are all really important topics it's just like it's really interesting that there's much more it's actually much more accessible to even think about applications of this and really unlocks the creativity of people who maybe wouldn't have been so interested in lms in the past and yeah i think i mean that's it's great to see just from our clients especially like we, we've seen people who have like very creative use cases probably beyond language models even it's like language models plus some sort of like graph or knowledge graph and things like that which i guess today it's it seems like it's totally plausible maybe even just three years back it would have been crazy that's crazy and it's funny because the, the next question is about oh go ahead abby would you like to add something yeah, I, I think I do agree with everything Christine says, which is in terms of how the changes have been from work to work to where we are today, I think it's very interesting to look at from the glass of the early models we had, which is going from RNNs to LSTNs to discovering encoder, decoder, transformer models and understanding the use of self-attention. And to where we are today, the scale has become really large, which has simplified a few things like tokenization, obviously, that used to be a big problem in, in the conventional applications. So what I, would, what I would probably say is, you know, the kind of uses that you could have gone out of these large, these NLP models, I should say, has changed quite a lot, which is earlier, I think you did use them as excellent classification models, whereas now they, have, they are being extended to use as reasoning engines, also as knowledge bases, also as generator, also for like generative application. And these three were not applications that were explored in as much depth as before. I love this. And the next question is really about the use cases that you guys have encountered on these large language models. So one of the most exciting aspects of large language models is this wild range of applications that you can use them. And today we are bombarded every day with new tools or plugins made with LLMs and using them in new contexts. And even AutoGPT or autonomous AI agents, which can call itself or use itself to complete tasks is, is really amazing. So have you seen examples of some practical examples of these use cases that you have encountered in the industry so far, people using this to solve cool problems or using it in creative ways? 
So ethical code, this one, which is there are some applications which are known to everybody, which is they're used for language generation, they're used for text classification, for machine translation and text summarization. What I mean by that is the whole, or the whole entirety of like everything that can be done with natural language processing or was done can be done better. For example, like sentiment analysis or entity recognition or text classification in any industry, you could say e-commerce or healthcare or finance. But I think some of the extended use cases now are content generation. Another one which I am personally fascinated with is virtual assistant and chatbots because I was use, working on reinforcement learning based agents back in 2018. So I was working on this idea of uh, what are really autonomous agents can we can we define the different levels of agency and can we get machines to do what we want them to do? I think that has become possible and there have been some applications from, if you've seen baby AGI and auto GPT, I think are some of the common ones, which are applications of these. And again, those have different implementations as well from like, hey, chatbots being used just on the website to them being integrated and to-do list to them being integrated for job search on LinkedIn, recommending candidates or just just any sort of outreach as well and then obviously there's research and creative writing which are two of the other aspects of the common applications of LLMs right now yeah absolutely chrome extensions basically you you click on everything and you have a suggestion from chat gpt or for some model to to reply or to complete something that's that's definitely crazy Christine, how about you? What would be your favorite use cases? Yeah, I think similar to Abby, I think other than the major use cases that, or the, the more common and obvious ones that everyone knows about, I think the most interesting ones I see always have a lot of like pipelining around it. So whether it's the ones that let you do actions, right? So not only do they give you a suggestion, but you can almost give it control to do something and it can sort of do it for you. So for example, like I was saying, email generation, like text, I mean, generating the text part is is actually like quite trivial. I mean, you can even use OpenAI. It doesn't like, unless you have something very private that you don't want to share, it's just a matter of generating text. But then, oh, I now want to put some pipelining so that I can tie it to my like HubSpot or my whatever else it is. It's like all the engineering and, and like plumbing work <laughs> around it that makes it into a true use case. And sometimes it's something silly like emails. Sometimes it's something like, oh, making a smart debugger that is aware of the context and the code that you have. Sometimes it's about like SQL query translation. And sometimes it's just like linking together multiple models and different types of models, like taking a whole bunch of text and not just summarizing it, but then being able to generate a knowledge graph is one that I've seen and is just crazy and super exciting. Yeah, now the other thing is just like being able to complete tasks. There, I think the original Lang chain was showing, okay, you can ask, you can give terminal access, ask to go to a page, scrape the HTML and put it in to, let's say, well, put it into an HTML file. Something silly, it, it seems silly, but then the idea that you can actually do something with these other than like, okay, put a prompt, get the response, and then I do stuff beside it it's really honestly the maybe the engineer part is coming out but i think the plumbing around making this into an actual use case is often a quite exciting part amazing and 
Now let's talk a little bit about like, transitioning from raw model of an LLM to a functional service or use case. Now this can be quite complex and can you give us like an overview of the steps that is involved into just bringing these models to life and making them usable in real world scenarios? Christina, I know this is something that we're trying to do right now in Shakuto or already doing. So how is this process looking like? Yeah, I will say for our in-house debugger or contextual debugger in general, Shakuto helper, the process is well, first, you have to figure out what kind of model you would like. Is it something that's smaller, like, I don't know, 7B parameters, let's say, that can fit on a smaller machine and maybe requires a little bit more work around the, like, prompting or, you know, you kind of have to, like, finagle the data a little bit to get something useful or something that's sufficiently large but also quite expensive. Like, this is, this is like, the first debate, right? Like, are you going to spend a lot of compute or whatever it is? But once you've kind of realized what the, or figured out what the model is going to be, like for us, it's really just like then being able to load the weights using some model service like Triton or maybe just building your own Flask app around it. I, I would say the part where you actually get it to production, i.e. like downloading the weights, making sure you've got some sort of service built around it. Um, and make like of course making sure that you can tie a UI to it and all of that like that is actually not most of the work most of the work goes around let's figure out the and it varies per per use case and it also varies per client right like some people want already have a lambda machine sitting around in which case we say let's use that and then get you the best model that can fit on there but I would say general steps are like figure out what kinds of compute well figure out what kinds of models are available and what kind of resources are required for this and then as a business figure out like what can you commit to or what what's a possible what's a good like cost that you can you're kind of comfortable with given what you can get from it and then the rest of it is just it's as simple as putting up any sort of service right and and for for us specifically on I mean, on Shakuto, it's it's the point of the I mean, the point of the platform is to make it easy to once you have the idea and once you've got some code for this to be able to serve it up quickly. But again, I would say it's really defining the problem, being able to get to like a business case, find the cost that fits for you, and then the rest of it is maybe not the most difficult part. Yeah, absolutely. It depends, right, on your use case, on what you have available at that moment, and. Abby, this is the topic of today's discussion. So actually taking these models to life and making them usable in production. So Abby, I know that you've worked a lot with this as well. Do you like to talk about the process and, and the key aspects involved? Sure. I think before even going into the question of deployment, which obviously is necessary, but we have some points to consider. One of the most commonly known points is LMs are undertrained, and more data and longer training can definitely improve the performance on various tasks. And this has been seen in various examples, for example, like chinchilla models, which was like a paper that came out of DeepMind. So that is one of the primary things to think of as in how much data do you have? Because that is the biggest bottleneck. So and when I talk about data, just, just the process of being able to clean up your data and come up with high quality data really matters. 
So there have been some, there are some approaches to generating additional data. For example, chain of thought reasoning, which was again mentioned in one of the papers by Huang. And that has been one that we have been doing internally. So another thing which I have been working very heavily in is data deduplication. Basically anything around cleaning up the data, coming up with high quality data, that is the first step to being able to get really good performance. Then the part comes once you have defined where your data sources are and once you've pre-processed your data, you've created tokenization, you've created tokenizers, then the next step comes, which is sampling and sharding your data, which is to be able to distribute your, to be able to distribute your jobs parallelly on various clusters so that you can use all of the nodes that are available to you and be compute optimal. And that is one of the, again, I would say one of the big challenges, while it's easier, but understanding the hardware requirements, as Christine pointed out, is quite important. And then the final part is once you have that part out now, how do you think about evaluating your model and having model checkpoints being, being stored? But again, if you're planning to do propping or fine tuning on top of it, then having some sort of infrastructure around that. And the, the last part is how, how does it become available to you, whether it's available as a REST API and you're calling it using the API calls or using a web interface, then the integration, I think, is, is definitely the easier part. But very much to what Christine said, which is the, the biggest part is really around the things that were the questions previously, but building these models that comes to, do we have clean data? Do we have a very clearly defined pipeline around how to pre-process this data, how to be able to combine this data and how to be able to compress and get high quality data out of this? And the second part is, is how do we sample and chart this data to be able to train it in, in the most optimal manner? Yeah, go ahead, Christine. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, completely agree with Abby. And in terms of even in digging into the hardware itself, it's a matter of like, if you're on AWS, I mean, first of all, it's like the availability of, of something like H100s, which not even everyone can get their hands on. It's like a supply problem or a supply and demand problem. There's like asking for additional EC2 limits if you're on AWS for some of these machines. And then also being able to like estimate the amounts of memory or which GPUs, what kind of GPU memory do you need while trying to be cost efficient? Because like at this point, we're racking up a huge bill. And so the co like every little bit that you can kind of shave off of infra is it's going to make a huge difference. Um, and then also like the hidden costs of like maintenance and then the nitty gritty things like how much, you know, cooling and things like that. But yeah, it, it's just, I think each individual one of these things that Abby mentioned in each step, we could even go into the further challenges of what comes inside here. It's, a, I would say just because it's quite new, these, these hardware and infrastructure problems that I'm mentioning are kind of rising up just because CP, like CPUs, you, you've got enough of them, right? If you know how to use Kubernetes or you know how to like manage your own VMs, you can kind of like, it's just a matter of, can you buy a CPU? And then it, it's still then less expensive than can you buy like an H100 or eight of them or, or more. So I think just because it's quite a new thing still, the space is moving quickly and the tech is moving quickly, but I don't think the infra and, and all the like surrounding services have quite caught up yet. 
And I think I'll add on to that, which is previously most of the machine learning models that were deployed were very much on the back end, whereas now you have more web applications built on top of these large language models, which raises additional questions in security. And another thing that we didn't have to worry that much previously about load balancing in CDN, which are obviously not new concepts. Engineers have been working on these concepts for like a very long time, but it's 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 that a lot of concepts from DevOps are now being adopted or a lot of concepts from just like best practices around web security are now being adopted on uh, for machine learning applications. I love this. And absolutely, fine-tuning plays a, a crucial role in adapting large language models to specific applications or industries everyone has their use case they want to use them on, right? Everyone wants to make this the the best they can have or the most tailored version to their unique needs. And could you guys walk me through the common techniques used to fine-tune these models and how to help enhance performance, usability, even maybe infrastructure or, or how to, to manage those things in in a more effective way? Abby, did you want to start? No, no, go ahead. I'll, I'll follow up. <laughs> okay, sure. Yeah, so fine-tuning is honestly still not in... It's an area of definitely more development. I mean, the whole space is still growing and expanding as we speak, but I would say fine-tuning doesn't necessarily have a set framework. There's, of course, the sort of tried and true concepts. I mean, or there's the general concepts of... Like, is it you know zero shot learning? Is it like single or few shot learning? And then is it very like, custom fine tuning? I think these days there's also a lot of research around, just going back to something we talked about before, like in terms of resourcing, there's a lot of research into parameter efficient fine tuning. There's also a lot of really interesting stuff on reinforcement learning with human feedback. That's, I would say, a fairly new area. And there's a couple of papers on that already, which is essentially like fine tuning the pre-trained LLM on a different set or a different corpus like you would, I guess, normally. And then also getting some human annotated data and doing a reward model with that and then doing another set of fine tuning with the reward model. So like I would say in terms of frameworks, there's definitely some good new research that's coming out and code that comes with it, which is, again, like engineering hat on. That's probably one of the more important things because it has to be open source enough for you to like tinker with and, and see how it does, right? But I would say still an open area. A couple of things that are really interesting are the two that I mentioned. And, and, and really, I think at the end of the day, the main question that always pops up is like, is the prompt engineering or when is it a good time to focus more on prompt engineering and sort of the you know zero shot learning approach versus when is it an appropriate time to retrain your whole model? I know Abby mentioned, and, and it, it is true that a lot of these LLMs are under trained for a specific task, right? Like they're trained to understand language as a whole, but not to understand or, or do things for like instruction-based things for a very specific vertical. But it really, it's like, it, it's really a, a, a 
I think, open question still. And we're working through this ourselves of like, is it a matter of prompt? And often it's both, right? Is it a matter of picking a better model, prompt engineering? And that's just some of the stuff that we're still working through. But I would say those are some of the main approaches. And like the main older approaches still apply. And there's some cool research coming out. So one of the very much like what Christine said, which is in, in the past times, the ways you basically fine-tuned your model was using SGD or Atom. And those, those were the things that we were thinking about, but now the infrastructure has changed a lot with large language models, where we do have four choices. Again, there's no research as such, and obviously there's no application as such of, as to which of these four methods or which combination of these four methods will be better. So the first is basically basic fine tuning that we can do with either with large language, sorry, with human reinforcement learning with human feedback, or you can still do it with a teacher student kind of framework where you have one model, which is acting at, as the student model and the other model is acting as the teacher model. And you're, you're learning in that way and you're fine tuning your model in that manner. So that is being used, that approach is being used by Anthropic with their constitutional AI. So that's one. The second is basically prompt engineering, fine-tuning, prompt engineering, knowledge distillation, and knocker decomposition are the four methods that you use. And in prompt engineering, again, there's that question of do you do few-shot prompting or do you do one-shot prompting or do you do chain-of-thought prompting? But again, very much like I don't honestly have an answer on this, which is what's the best way to be able to optimize? It depends. And when to prompt engineer versus when to fine tune, it depends. Nobody has the different answer on these things. Yeah, I do agree. The space is so new, right? We're trying to figure it out as we receive new tools or new information. And as we just try things out and, and do things in different ways. And absolutely, we can see already a lot of people trying to, to teach hacks for prompt engineering and how you can achieve a better performance and fine-tune your results with some more specific prompts or something like that. It has even been... Right. Yeah. Again, the question with that comes every single time you have an update on the model, a lot of the prompts that might have worked previously may be open to changing given you're going with a beta-based model or because internally you don't have the information or the logs around what really has changed or how much feedback or how much extra data has really gone into that entire process. So there's no backtracking availability. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess this is something that, that we're learning as we go and trying to build stuff with it. I particularly have been trying to build some projects with it and trying to figure it out the best ways to to get some information out and the best ways to, to get it to understand myself, right? So perhaps in future models like GPT-5 or, or something like that, even when you can show them images, then this will become some other level. So we're being constantly showed with new projects and new products made with LLMs that just blows our minds and show us new capabilities that at least I didn't thought it was going to come anytime soon. And yeah, achieving optimal results with large language models, 
is often a combination of prompt engineering and model fine tuning itself. So what are the typical process of really iterating and refining those models and fine tuning those models to ensure that they intended that they have the intended objectives that they're looking for. So how companies are right now doing this and how are they using it into their day-to-day tasks and workflows? So I'll go on this. The model fine tuning is is still something which is like I have not personally, in my experience, seen a lot of fine-tuning happening on large language models. And one of the cool reasons is, at least my team has been exploring prompt engineering a little bit more heavily as compared to the model fine-tuning. Obviously, there are, there are some conventional tuning approaches that were used previously on the conventional machine learning models that do still hold to this day. Are we able to achieve optimal results with that, it's, it's again a question of there's there's no grounding which is available, there's no benchmark that is available. But one of the things that we've been doing is, is basically using more early stopping, defining different batches and doing early stopping on and then being able to segregate the, the data which does have a lower learning rate. Yeah, that, that's very Interesting. And Christine, would you like to add anything on, on how our companies right now fine-tuning these models to, to get more, I guess, tailored results? Yeah, same. I mean, again, agreed with Abby. I think right now it's it's we're getting to the phase where everyone is getting more comfortable with using these LLMs in the first place. In terms of fine-tuning, I, I definitely see that as an area that, I mean, and I know we all see it, it's going to be an area that... Uh, that kind of is the next thing to to blow up and is currently undergoing a lot of development. And I mean, there's a lot of other things too that people are looking at, but I would say for now, it's, I've seen it more as a, let's get a use case out and then get some human feedback. That tends to be the most, I would say that tends to be the most popular approach just because like we're still, maybe it's a, maybe it's a psychological thing, but I think we still like to be, in quote unquote control by being able to look at the results like further annotate data and then use that to feed the model like really there's no right approach it's just that's still currently under development but i think at least everyone's getting to the point where they're let's say on their second or third iteration and thinking about thinking about fine-tuning further but you know a lot of people just stick to prompt engineering as far as like we've seen and then, yeah. and then a little bit of fine-tuning. Yeah, I think the most common is just fine-tuning, prompting engineering. And if you're in the audience right now, we'd like to ask Abby or Christine any questions. Right now is the moment for you to request as we go to the last couple of questions here. And I'd also like to, to ask a bit of a controversial question here, guys, because it's a topic that it's been actually very much discussed in Twitter right now, which is, are there really advantages of open sourcing large language models to as powerful as GPT-4, for example, or GPT-5 to everyone and make that available so that anyone can have access to these really advanced models? And I would love to know your take on this topic and, and what you guys think. 
I think similar to software. I think yeah, that's the uh, that's the uh, that's the core question for a lot of software as well, right? Like whether or not open sourcing it, which gives you all the advantages of the public being aware of what's happening and then then being able to contribute. I will say, like, OpenAI and ChatGPT really led the way for everyone to start thinking about doing these things, and then. We had you know, Llama, which was an open source con- sort of competitor, or another open source LLM that made. I would say that that kind of led to all the other, like the Vicuña, the Al- Alpaca, and everything else. Like, the, I would say the while ChatGPT did the initial like marketing work of making putting LLMs in the spotlight, probably open sourcing the models led to, or probably open source models were the ones that led to like true excitement. Because I think you can capture both the the tinkerers and people who are interested in the use cases, like just use cases alone, right? Without being able to open source, I don't, or without having open source and companies being able to try something on their own infra, I don't know that it would have the same level of popularity. Soon, like sooner or later, the the like data privacy and all of that would have come up and and it would have been a blocker or it would have been something that, prevented like widespread adoption of the language models anyway so i'm inclined to say like open sourcing in this specific case probably helped the field now i don't know about like how the companies feel about it themselves but even so originally i think llama was you had to uh, agree to a very specific set of terms to be able to use their model but then someone made a PR for a, like a BitTorrent upload or something. So like one way, I think one way or another people would try probably to make their own open source version of it. Like if it was, if it gained enough traction, people would probably try to open source it anyway. So I guess you can be the good guy and, and open or girl or person and open source it to start with and use that as also like a marketing for company as well. But really there's, and, and I would say like open sourcing it kind of leads to the next phase of things right now you've got something that works but oh like you it, it kind of inspires a race to get a better model for everyone else and and there's also you know much more small much smaller more accessible models now like the llama like ccp or llama cpp that just runs on your macbook or something and I don't think these things I mean it might have taken longer for them to come out but it, it kind of gives the opportunity for everyone to contribute to the space. So overall, I would see it as a good thing. Yeah, I think I'll be the devil's advocate on this one. And recently, you know, I feel like scarcity does create competition in the field. And the fact that OpenAI was able to create scarcity, which is, hey, these models will be entirely owned by OpenAI, or GPT-4 has massive usage, and all of the data will go to them, all the users will go to them, did prompt in some way to come up with their own llama model and eventually everybody jumped the gun. And anytime I feel like that happens, the open source will automatically follow. So while I don't say let's let's close out our models, but I think initially it may make sense to close your models and to test the market instead of open sourcing it because there are so many like just just look at the number of open source packages that are available on github if let's say if some of them were able to build market traction before open sourcing them i think there would be higher adoption as compared to everything being available from the get-go and 
I mean, the the good part about open sourcing is even if even if the weights and biases, like Christine mentioned, aren't available, there was some there was the entire community which was like, hey, let's let's try to hack the model and let's try to get the weights and biases out of this llama model, and the smaller models which were created versus you could say llama CPP or Whisper CPP or GPT for all, these are these are all using quantization at post training. But again, all of these things do require resources for having these kind of training resources or for having the resources to be able to train the model first, you need to have some sort of business model initially. And I, I think the people who do not have the business resources can then further use your models and do some sort of compression techniques, whether that's quantization or whether that's pruning to be able to create smaller models. And I think that creates more like healthy competition in the field. So probably not the most, uh, not the not the best thing to say, especially when you're live, which is let's close out things. But I do definitely feel like there's some advantage to not open sourcing everything. Yeah, I do see your point there. Both great points. We do want to keep up this initial competition and, and see like what comes after this race. I guess what people are actually a bit worried when it comes to open sourcing these large language models. I feel like everyone is the, I, I think the security aspects of actually artificial intelligence. And I think people are getting quite scared with it scared with it and we've seen even big names like Elon Musk to ask people to to stop advancements for like six months in in AI and and in ChatGPT which is crazy because it looks like people are getting kind of worried of the power this can have right so this is definitely constantly evolving and it's I think shaping the future very rapidly and with that in mind, with what I just said in mind, like, okay, how about the security risks of it as well? How do you envision the future of this technology? Do you actually think that this can be any in any form a risk for us at any point? It can be even like taking our jobs or something, but even like a more being used to do perhaps not so, I think, ethical things, right? So... What are the breakthroughs that we might be seeing on this in the next years? And how, how is your perspective on the future of this technology? Oh, it seems like we lost Christine, but Abby, would you mind going and take this one? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, maybe not another best statement to start with, but I would not take anything Elon must say seriously. A reason being because he, he says, don't develop anything and then goes to create his own company that is trying to replicate the same thing and says, oh, mine is just more truthful. Sure, we know. But coming to the more important discussion, which is what will be the implications of this technology? I mean, security is definitely one of those examples. I was sharing a paper yesterday on how easy is it to be able to hack into these models. And as of now, it's quite easy. The second thing is you could infiltrate the open resources. So for example, websites, 
And that is one easy way to be able to infiltrate your entire training data as well, because again, there are no best practices as such, which are available on, you know, how do we design or how do we get information from public sources? So there's this framework called OSINT framework, which does focus on how, what's the right way to be able to gather information from tools, the tools and resources that are available out on the internet. I think the adaptation of something like that to our field would be quite interesting. The other part I wanted to mention was when it comes to the deployment, I don't think we were tight we were tight knitting the security as much. We're now, at least in terms of the MLOps practices, have definitely improvised enough where there's more authentication. People are understanding that you can't be sharing passwords. You have to have rule-based access control for every single deployment that you're making within your organization. So I think we're just picking up the best practices slowly and that would change things. It might take some time, probably a year or two years, but I feel like we'll, we'll be able to figure it out. When it comes to taking the jobs, there was something very interesting that was said in one of the meetings that was yesterday, which is ChatGPT has made a manager out of every single developer. And, the, and I think that's probably the right way to do it. So for example, like when we look at the big filmmakers, most of the big filmmakers are now doing every aspect, which is the lighting or the acting or the screenplay writing entirely by themselves. They have people to be able to do these things while they still maintain the creative control of how they want that film to be conceived or how they want that film to be made. And I think very similar would be when it comes to the large language models, which is they have given us that kind of creative control or thought processes itself. This work has been coming up in the task-based autonomous agents or the goal-based autonomous agents. I love the take, Abby, and thank you so much for participating with us and joining this discussion. To close this space off, would you like to wrap it up with any final advice for people in the audience working with large language models or thinking about bringing those models to their companies as open source versions and to customize them and put them in production? Would you give them some tips on how to do it and some advice from your experience? So one of the tips I have almost for, this is one thing I've been telling to everybody that large doesn't necessarily mean better. It's, it's very much possible to be able to have better performance when you are building a model that is domain specific as compared to like generalized model. Second thing is while using a vendor-based model, so OpenAI model or Anthropic or Cohere models would be interesting as play models, but especially for enterprise solution, it makes perfect sense to be able to use one of those open source models. So you could pick GPT for all, or you could pick Llama.cpp and start building something for yourself in-house. And the final thing is think about security and governance before before starting on the model building part, which is don't, don't buy four GPUs without thinking, how are you going to govern these models? How will you train a team of annotators to be able to write the write good prompts for your model? And how would you evaluate your model? Those, those are very important things to think about before you go into that process of let's spend three months building something. 
Amazing. And I think we, we are good to close our spaces with that. So this is amazing advice. Unfortunately, us couldn't be with us for technical issues. And Christine had to drop early. So now it's just you and me, Abby. Thank you so much for joining to have this talk with me. And your expertise have been incredible to actually enlighten a little bit of us on large language models and how companies are dealing with it right now and individuals as well. So thank you for being here. Thank you so much, Sabrina. Thank you for inviting me. It was a wonderful conversation. Amazing. And thank you so much for everyone in the audience who stick to with us till now. Make sure you check Abby's profile. She's always doing some amazing stuff around large language models that you might be interested in. And also the other speakers, Arisma and Christine, they're very into the space. And Arisma does publish a lot of amazing threads on ML ops and data science. So if you're into that, check out his profile as well. Thank you so much for everyone. See you on the next Big Data Small Talk. Bye-bye.